here. Um, we will be uh, starting with the freedom of religion, South Africa. Uh, you have 20 minutes to present, which will be followed by questions um, for another, it's how, it's how many minutes, committee secretary, the questions and answers? I'm being chased, 30 minutes. 30 minutes, thank you very much. Uh, are you ready, uh, uh, Freedom of Religion, South Africa? We are ready, um, Chairperson, to <laughs> Um, thank you, committee chair. Um, thank you, committee chair and um, committee members for inviting Forest Aid to participate in this meeting, um, and to the committee secretary for enabling screen share, which I will start now. I will also drop this presentation, a PDF of it, in the chat box for all the committee members present for your ease of finding it. All right, um, let me just pull this up here. Thank you. So your 20 minutes starts. Okay, thank you, Chairperson. Yes, and it is the PDF that is sharing, wonderful. Right, um, we trust that our submission will be brief. Um, I hopefully won't be using the whole 20 minutes, um, but hopefully our submission will provide a unique perspective that will assist the committee in drafting a law that practically benefits our nation. Now, I am Daniela Illebeck. I am an attorney and I am Forest A's legal advisor. Now, about Forest A. Forest Aid is a legal advocacy organization and it works to protect and promote the right to freedom of conscience, religion, thought, belief, and opinion, which in this presentation I'll simply refer to as the right to religious freedom. Uh, now, the right to religious freedom is a constitutional right that is found in Section 15 of our Bill of Rights. And Forest Aid currently has an endorsement base of religious leaders representing approximately 6 million people in South Africa. Um, when it comes to the um, lockdown regulations, we're representing approximately 18 million people from a wide variety of um, denominations, churches, and faith groups, um, including um, African traditional spirituality. Now, I want to start off by saying that as an organization, Forest A believes that every human being is created in the image of God and as such has intrinsic dignity and worth. And because God gives dignity and worth to all people, as human beings, we ought to do the same. And no person should suffer violence or hatred because of their race, their nationality, their sex, their religion, or any other characteristic. And our interest in this bill is limited only to those aspects that could have a bearing on the right to religious freedom and related rights, specifically in this case, on the right to freedom of religious expression. Now, turning to the right to religious freedom, what is it? As I've said, religious freedom is a right protected in section 15 of our constitution, which says that everyone has the right to freedom of conscience, religion, thought, belief, and opinion. And we see that this right um, in section 15, applies not only to individuals, but because of Section 8.2 of the Constitution, it also applies to juristic persons such as faith-based organizations. And that it overlaps with the right to freedom of expression, which is found in Section 16 of the Constitution. 
Because religious freedom entails being able to express your faith, um, as illustrated by our constitutional court's definition of religious freedom, um, which is, and I quote, the right to entertain such religious beliefs as a person chooses, the right to declare religious beliefs openly and without fear of hindrance or reprisal, and the right to manifest religious belief by worship and practice and by teaching and dissemination. And that this freedom implies an absence of coercion and constraint and may be impaired by measures that force people to act or to refrain from acting in a manner contrary to their religious beliefs. And I end the quote. In other words, what we see is that the right to religious freedom is the right to believe not only what you want to believe and to freely live it out in the public realm by words and public action. And as a human right, as a human right, this right attaches to you simply as a human being and you take it wherever you go. You don't leave it behind when you close your front door in the morning. As with all the rights found in the Constitution's Bill of Rights, um, which the Constitution says is the cornerstone of our democracy, these rights can only be limited in accordance with the law of general application that passes the Section 36 test. Turning to Forrest A's concerns about the bill. Now, first of all, we want to commend what we believe to uh, be a bona fide effort to prevent and combat hate crimes and hate speech and to create an environment where South Africans can peacefully coexist despite our differences. As an organization, we are, however, concerned that the bill, particularly the hate speech component of it, is defined so broadly that it will violate other constitutional rights, including particularly the right to freedom of expression in Section 16 and the right to religious freedom in Section 15. Now, turning to the definition of religious freedom, in this slide on the left-hand column, you will see the bill's definition of hate speech found in Clause 4.1 of the bill, as well as the Constitutional Court's definition of hate speech from last year's Puelani judgment of that court. So we see that the bill's current definition of hate speech in Clause 4.1 is overboard as it goes further than Constitutional Court's definition of hate speech in the matter of Quilani versus the Human Rights Commission, or simply Quilani, which was last year's seminal case where the court for the first time defined hate speech. We are therefore concerned that because the bill's definition of hate speech is broader than what the Constitutional Court said is permissible, it is unconstitutional. And I want to point out that the Quilani case was about the constitutionality of the Promotion of Equality and Prevention of Unfair Discrimination Act, or PEPUDA's definition of hate speech, and that the court found that PEPUDA's original prohibition of hate speech was too wide, and the court redrafted it to make it narrower. Now, importantly, in Quilani, the Constitutional Court emphasized that the expression of unpopular or even offensive beliefs does not constitute hate speech, and that hate speech does not serve to stifle ideology, beliefs, or views. Now, Peputa is a law that imposes mere civil sanctions. So, for example, um, you could be ordered by a court to apologize um, if the court finds you guilty of hate speech. Um, and this is very different from the case of this bill, which proposes criminal sanctions. So you'll have a criminal record and you could go to jail. Obviously, it should be easier to be found guilty of a civil sanction than of a criminal one. Now, what we see here, um, going on to the bull's prohibition of hate speech, is that 
The bill's current prohibition of hate speech found in Clause for one is similarly overboard as it again goes further than the constitutional court's redrafted uh, prohibition of hate speech in Quilani. What this means is that will creates the untenable legal situation where it's easier to be found guilty of the crime of hate speech and go to jail than it is to be found guilty of the civil offense of hate speech and be ordered to apologize under Papuda. We are therefore concerned that the bill's prohibition of hate speech is unconstitutional. And I want to point out here that I've obviously um, we've highlighted the key words being the and or the or. Um, so with the bill's reading, which I believe the department also pointed out to this committee in its um, briefing to this committee on this bill, is that we now have a disjointed reading in the bill. You can you don't have to prove all the elements um, that are cited here in order to be found guilty. You can only prove one. Whereas with the Constitutional Court's reworked prohibition in Peputa, you have to prove all of them in order to have been found guilty of a civil offence. So um, turning to the definition of, um, of harm, and I want to point out here that, as we can see on this slide, the prohibition, even the definition of hate speech, um, have to do with harm and incite harm. It's important to note that um, because they require harm, the bull's current definition of harm is also important. And unfortunately, the bill's current definition of harm, again, is overbroad and goes further than the Constitutional Court's definition of harm in Quilani. And I want to point out that in Quilani, the Concord, for the first time, specifically defined harm, specifically in relation to hate speech. Um, therefore, it is not simply a matter of changing the or to an and when it comes to the hate speech definition of the bill um, in the bill's clause 4.1. But one also needs to be cognizant that because hate speech incorporates harm and harmful, you also need to change the harm, the definition of harm to be constitutionally compliant and to be brought in line with the case law. So the bill does incorporate a religious exemption clause. And while we commend the inclusion of a religious exemption clause, Forese is concerned that the exemption clause is open to possible interpretation that would defeat its purpose, namely to protect a religious expression from being deemed to be the crime of hate speech. Now, I want to point out that this concern is not without merit, um, as evidenced by statements made by the Deputy Minister of Justice and Constitutional Development, the Honourable John Jeffrey, um, to this very committee, that the exception clause would probably only apply to statements made from the pulpit and not to statements by individuals. Now, this statement is greatly concerning and without any merit because on the plain wording of the religious exemption clause, there is no room for such a distinction or limitation. Moreover, as already pointed out, um, the right to religious freedom, which includes religious speech, belongs to everyone everywhere in the Republic. You take it with you wherever you go. It attaches to you as a human being. Um, it therefore belongs as much to the pastor in the pulpit as it does to the person who shares his or her religious convictions and beliefs on the street, in the workplace, or in any other setting or forum. So to limit the application of the religious exemption clause to sermons only implies that the conscience, the convictions and beliefs of individual believers are somehow 
less sacred and worthy of constitutional protection than their pastors. Now, this is clearly not supported by either the constitution or the case law, and such an interpretation would serve to stifle ideology, beliefs, or views, contrary to what our concord said um, in the Quilani matter, and the court's view that hate speech law should not be used to do this. Now, 4SA agrees that no one, whether a pastor or individual believer, in whatever setting, whether it's in the pulpit or anywhere else, should be allowed to make statements that advocate hatred and incite violence against people. And we strongly condemn any such instances of hate speech, whether it's against another religion, members of the LGBT community, or any other group of persons. However, the definition of hate speech and harm in the bill are already being stretched far beyond either the Constitution, Section 16.2, which one has to point out was deliberately limited so that freedom of speech and freedom of expression would be largely unhindered in our democracy, or the Concord's judgments on this issue. By contrast, the definitions in the current bill would cause speech that anyone could potentially find offensive, um, even if it is not directed at them, to be caught in its harm net and therefore to be caught in its hate speech net and criminalized. The religious exemption clause drafted in such a narrow way that it could be interpreted to single out speech from uh, the pulpit for protection only, yet leaving all other religious speech and other settings exposed is a double blow to fundamental rights. Now, should the deputy minister's interpretation be applied or upheld um, by courts, the overbroad definition of hate speech in the bill continues to pose a severe threat to religious freedom because it could be employed to muzzle and or have the unintended effect of muzzling believers across different faith groups from expressing, whether from the pulpit in a mosque or to a public or private audience, they sincerely held religious convictions and beliefs. And it is very possible, as experience has already shown, examples of which are set out in our written submission to this committee on this bill, that the expression of such beliefs may be misinterpreted by those holding different convictions and beliefs as intending to be harmful or to incite harm, meaning they would fall then because you only have to prove one fact, you don't have to prove all of them. And because of the bill's wide definition of harm and harmful within the definition of hate speech and therefore be criminalized. Now, turning to the bill's criminalization of hate speech, um, as set out in the UN strategy and plan of action on hate speech, one of the key principles that um, the strategy and action plan is founded upon is that, and I quote, the United Nations supports more speech, not less, as the key means to address hate speech, end quote. Furthermore, um, in terms of the Constitution, uh, courts must consider international law when interpreting the Bill of Rights. Um, and when interpreting any legislation, courts must prefer any reasonable interpretation that is consistent with international law. So it would be prudent to, be, to take cognizance of South Africa's um, international law obligations when considering this bill that directly affects fundamental rights, such as the right to religious freedom and freedom of expression. Um, and there are various instruments that South Africa is signatory to, all of which protect religious freedom and freedom of expression. They are covered in depth in our written submission. Um, we are left to five minutes. Thank you. I want to point out that um, the bill 
uh, goes much wider than these international instruments um, and adopts the idea of less speech is more and ignores South Africa's other obligations under these international instruments. Finally, I also want to say that it is uh, for SA's view that this bill is unnecessary um, because in South Africa, the crime of crimen inuria, and, um, in other words, the willful injury to someone's dignity, as well as the civil sanctions for hate speech under the um, pewter, have both been used successfully to find people guilty of the crime of hate speech and sent to jail, as we have seen in the cases of, for example, Sparrow and Womberg, um, as well as civil sanctions, as we've seen in the case of Quelani, for hate speech. And they've already been used effectively um, to combat instances such as these. And for this reason, it is unlikely that the bill will meet the Section 36 test, which is required to meet when limiting fundamental rights. To this extent, 4SA's um, recommendations are omitting the hate speech provisions from the bill altogether because they are unnecessary. Alternatively, should this committee wish to keep the hate speech provisions um, to revise the definitions of both harm and hate speech and the prohibition of hate speech to make it constitutionally compliant, to strengthen the religious exemption clause and clarify it so that it is clear it applies to everyone everywhere in the Republic when they express their religious beliefs and not just to pastors in the pulpit, and to make sure that the bill meets um, the UN Rabat threshold test uh, to make sure that it does not violate international law. Finally, our recommendation is that the bill's preamble should also include specific references to the rights found in section 15 and 31 of the constitution. Now, for example, a uh, strengthened religious exemption clause, which we've put in our written submission to this committee, could, for example, include the following text. Um, the addition recommended by 4SA is in bold and underlined to make it clear that it applies not only to churches or pastors, um, but also to individuals and whether it's in public or private. Thank you uh, for giving us the opportunity to present this to this committee and I look forward to taking any questions. Thank you very much, uh, Ms. Ellebeck, uh, Freedom of Religion, South Africa. Uh, members, are there any questions or comments on the presentation that we have just received? Honorable Steve Swart. Morning, Chair. Morning, colleagues, and morning, to Ms. Ellerbrecht. Thank you, Chair. I am um, obviously the beginning of these public hearings. And Chair, please tell me if you can't hear me because my connection has been, I have been struggling with it. So I'll keep it brief. The debate mm -hmm. is a, can, can you hear me, you. Chair? Yes, we can hear you. The debate obviously has been and will continue to be whether we need the hate speech provisions given the the provisions which are very clear on hate speech and already been enunciated by the courts. And I think that debate continues. You make a strong case that it's not necessary. I would like to then particularly just ask you the simple, um, the simple solution to 4.1, which is that definition uh, would be, as the department has pointed out, instead of the um, disjunctive to read it conjunctively, put in and as opposed to or, that would solve that problem. And then should, which is not necessarily the, the preferred option, but should 
from our perspective, should the hate speech provisions be retained, would that exemption, which you have suggested the wording to improve it, to make it clear, should that be adopted? And obviously it depends on the department. Would that satisfy concerns about religious exemptions? So I'd like you to just touch on firstly, again, the need for the hate speech provisions at all, and then the exemption, religious exemption clause. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Honorable Swart. Honorable Engelberg. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and um, thank you to Ms. Ellebeck for her presentation. Um, Mr. Chair, I just have a question um, in terms of her comments relating to uh, South African law um, dealing with criminal injuria. Um, now, if I, well, firstly, I just want to state um, where I come from um, is that um, there, there are existing legislation that are dealing with these kind of things. Um, and I, I believe that a weak implementation of, the, of existing acts um, cannot be mitigated by adding another act dealing with more or less the same thing. Um, wouldn't it be more appropriate to amend an existing act dealing with hate speech um, should there be shortcomings um, in, in the legislation dealing with criminal injuria rather than putting a brand new piece of legislation on the books that, um, because I'm just very uh, afraid that we are moving down the slippery slope of trying to legislate morality in this country now with these kind of things, because we have very good legislation in place dealing with this. Um, and, and should people feel aggrieved and feel that there's some shortcomings, surely we can enter a process where we can amend existing legislation um, without having to go into creating a brand new piece of legislation dealing with more uh, uh, the same thing. Um, thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you, Honorable Elbeck. Uh, Ms. Ellebeck, uh, your responses? Thank you, Chair. Um, Honorable Swart, I got kicked off the meeting while you were asking me the question, so I, I fear I only might have heard half of it, but I'll answer it. And if I am omitting, um, please just point out if there's anything else you would like me to address. Um, and I think I could answer um, Honorable Innerbrach's um, question as well, because it touches on what Honorable Swart raised, which is the need for this hate speech, um, the criminalization of hate speech in an, in an additional law. Um, and as pointed out in our presentation, as well as our written submission to this committee, it's for a view that this law is not necessary um, because one, we already have existing laws. Um, so we've got the civil sanctions under Peputa, which have been used very successfully, even under the redrafted narrow definition to find, uh, for example, 
Mr. John Kualani guilty of hate speech against the LGBT community. Um, and then we also have the common law crime of criminal era, which has been successfully used to send people to jail for um, racist comments. So what we need, and I agree with Honorable Innerbrecht, is we don't need 10 laws that all prohibit the same thing. Um, we need one law that's um, properly implemented. Um, so in our view, there's no need for these hate speech provis provisions, which um, in their current form, contravene our obligations under international law to protect religious freedom and freedom of expression. Um, specifically, as set out in our written submission, um, the way the bill's drafted at the moment, it fails to meet the UN uh, Rabat threshold test um, and as a result will likely infringe Article 20 of International Covenant of Civil and Political Rights, which we're party to. Um, it also... Um, other covenants that we've signed, such as the um, African Charter on Human and People's Rights or the Bundral Charter. So not only is it unneeded, it's going to cause us problems internationally because we're going against um, the norm and against obligations there, but also against what the Constitutional Court has said um, in the Kualani matter, not just because of the conjunctive and disjunctive reading, um, Honourable Swart, but because... Um, as said in the presentation, the hate speech definition and prohibition in clause for one of the bill um, incorporates harm, which is in and of itself defined in the bill very widely, much wider than what the Concord has said, um, is permissible um, when it comes to harm in relation to hate speech. We run into problems there as well um, in terms of it being unconstitutional in terms of our own law, um, with the state obviously being tasked to uphold and promote all rights in the Bill of Rights without creating a hierarchy. Um, so it's our view that the hate speech provisions are unnecessary and that they cause more problems than any good that they could cause, because we already have laws that have been used um, effectively to combat instances of hate speech in this country. Um, does that answer the questions? Um, Honourable Swat, did I miss anything you said? Sorry, as I said, I did get kicked off. Honourable Swart, can you summarise your question? Uh, thank you, Chair. Through you, I, I, I'm covered. Um, I wanted to just ask one very brief follow-up, and that is, would also support the excisement of the hate speech provisions and leave the hate crime provisions? Should that be open for deliberations. In other words, one doesn't reject the whole bill, but one has the hate crimes bill, which could be very necessary, as opposed to the hate speech, which is already contained in other legislation. Thank you. Thank you. Honorable Swart, 4SA would support that. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much to Ms. Ellerbeck for the presentation. Uh, we will now invite the South African Jewish Board of Deputies. Good morning, Honorable Chair. Can everyone hear me okay? Yes, we can hear you, we can see you. Thank, Thank you, you very so much. much. My name oh. is Elena Baranoff. And I'm very proud to be the, representing the South African Jewish Board of Deputies. And uh, I will be joined by our national director, Ms. Wendy Khan, for the question section of our submission. Thank I'm just you going very to... much. You have 20 minutes. 
Thank you so much. I'll share my screen now. In the two decades since our first democratic elections, South Africa has made significant progress in ensuring that freedom, dignity, and equality are respected and afforded to all. However, in stark contrast with our progressive policy and legislative guarantees for fundamental human rights, instances of hate crimes, hate speech, and bias-motivated violence have only grown in recent years. The South African Jewish Board of Deputies is the representative body and the human rights lobby of the South African Jewish community. In this capacity, we are a founding and current steering committee member of the Hate Crimes Working Group, a multi-sectoral network of civil society organizations that advocate for hate crimes awareness, education, monitoring, and legislation. I will be presenting my organization's oral submission to you today on the prevention and combating of hate crimes and hate speech bill. Now, as an organization whose core mandate it is to protect the civil liberties of South African Jewry through combating anti-Semitism and fighting against other forms of discrimination, we welcome the publication of the Prevention and Combating of Hate Crimes and Hate Speech Bill, and we are grateful for the opportunity to present to you today. I would like to begin by noting that as members of the Hate Crimes Working Group, we fully endorse both their written and oral submission on the bill. And in addition to the points raised by the Hate Crimes Working Group, the SAJBD would like to have a brief discussion on anti-Semitism and its history in South Africa. And then I would like to focus on four key concerns regarding the bill that were raised in our more detailed written submission to Parliament last year. Anti-Semitism constitutes prejudice against Jewish people, whether defined as an ethnic or a religious group or both. It can also refer to prejudice against Judaism, the Jewish religion. A working definition of anti-Semitic behavior might be any malicious act aimed at Jewish people, organizations, or property, where there is evidence that the act has anti-Semitic motivation or content, or that the victim was targeted because they are, or are believed to be, Jewish. Such acts include assault, vandalism, threats, verbal abuse, graffiti, hate mail, boycott initiatives aimed specifically at South African Jews, including Jewish-owned or managed businesses, and the dissemination of overly anti-Semitic literature. Anti-Semitism can also manifest under the guise of hostility to the state of Israel and or Zionism, the Jewish nationalist movement. Now, anti-Zionism does not automatically amount to anti-Semitism, but in certain instances, it takes such extreme forms as to resonate strongly with traditional anti-Semitic tropes and stereotypes. Times of intensified conflict between Israel and its neighbors invariably see a sharp rise in anti-Semitic activity, both locally and internationally. There has been a steady upsurge in anti-Semitism around the world, since the beginning of the century, with many countries with significant Jewish populations recording consistently higher numbers of attacks on an annual basis. Relative to these countries, South Africa has low rates of anti-Semitism, both in terms of our numbers and their severity. About 60 incidences are recorded each year, mainly taking the form of verbal abuse and hate mail. Incidences including physical violence, while not unknown, are rare. 
And even in South Africa, however, there has been an upward trend in the number of incidences recorded annually since 2000. Social media has become a platform for the propagation of hate speech. And no regulatory bodies really exist to monitor, moderate, and take action against such abuse. And the nature of social media also means that perpetrators are able to publish material anonymously. A number of highly inflammatory remarks and attacks against the Jewish community, including incitement of violence, have been propagated on these platforms such as Facebook and Twitter. I would now like to highlight four key points from our written submission on the bill. The first is the resourcing of bodies. The success of the legislation in achieving its purpose is heavily reliant on both the functionality and the effectiveness of statutory bodies whose purpose is to address racism, racial discrimination, and related intolerance. These include the South African Human Rights Commission, Equality Courts, and media regulatory bodies such as the Broadcasting Complaints Commission of South Africa. Currently, these institutions are severely under-resourced in terms of qualified personnel able to deal with the volume of complaints received. And this has resulted in large and ever-increasing backlogs in terms of complaints waiting to be dealt with, and also inordinately long waiting periods between the submission of a complaint and its eventual resolution. Sometimes the resolution of a complaint is even further prolonged by the matter needing to make its way through the course, with no recourse to expedite the court process. Two examples of overly prolonged matters that the South African Human Rights Commission and the Jewish Board of Deputies have been involved with are Mangani Masuku. In March 2009, the South African Jewish Board of Deputies lodged a complaint of hate speech against Kasatu spokesperson Mangani Masuku. Although the Human Rights Commission issued its ruling in December of that year, it took successive cases before the Equality Court, Supreme Court of Appeal, and finally the Constitutional Court, before the ruling could be enforced in February 2022, nearly 13 years later. The other example is the Tony Ehrenreich case. The board lodged a hate speech complaint against the Kosatu Western Cape chairperson in August 2014. It was only in September 2018, however, that the South African Human Rights Commission issued its ruling on the complaint, and it took until July 2020 for the matter to be finalized through Aaron Reich's complying with it. The entire process lasted just under six years. It follows from that that the bill, in order to be effective in discouraging and penalizing hate crimes and providing a remedy for victims, needs to ensure that the regulatory authorities must be sufficiently staffed and resourced to be enabled to deal with complaints timelessly and efficiently. The possibility of retired judges or legal practitioners being brought on board must be explored. The next point is on education and training. As existing case law demonstrates, adjudicating hate crimes, particularly involving speech rather than action, can be very complex. The experience of the SAJBD is that there is a serious lack of understanding about what constitutes a hate crime and what the appropriate response should be. This is especially apparent when it comes not only to ordinary law enforcement officials, when a person is trying to lay a charge of hate speech or hate crime, but is also evident in the magistrate's court, as well as sometimes in the higher courts. Many times cases are lodged with the police and are simply not followed up. 
or if they are, it is only through using legal specialists, which most people in South Africa simply cannot afford. From this point, it's apparent that all law enforcement officials and judicial officers will need to be given a reasonable amount of education and training on what constitutes hate crimes and how to deal with them appropriately. Citizen empowerment and education. In practice, it's very difficult for the average South African to address their grievances through the existing system, since the processes are time-consuming, complex, and often prohibitively expensive. For example, while the equality courts were set up to provide a cost-free and reasonably swift remedy for those unable to approach the higher courts, in the SAJBD's experience, bringing matters before them has required a huge investment in time and expenditure. As the experiences that we have had show, even when cases are brought to the Human Rights Commission, Equality Courts, or BCCSA, and they're ultimately resolved, this usually requires extensive and regular follow-up, and often with input of legal advisors. Very few members of the public are in a position to Finally, those charged with responding to hate crimes require education and training, and it's important to also ensure that the wider community is educated about their rights and the options that they have in this regard, and how they can go about seeking practical remedies through the public institutions and resources that are available. Restorative justice is another point I would like to address. In protecting South Africans from hate crimes and hate speech, there is a need to address the root cause of the problem and to change hearts and minds on the issue of tolerance and diversity. How people relate to those who are different from them is conditioned by the culture in which they are raised and the environment in which they grew up and are educated. And our challenge is to foster a culture of respect for and tolerance of difference and diversity at all levels of society, with a particular focus on the youth. Restorative justice methods are therefore essential in addressing instances of hate and preventing them from happening in the future. Educational workshops fostering tolerance not only address the motivations behind and prevent racism and discrimination of all forms, but they can also be effectively utilized as a form of restorative justice in incidences where hate speech and hate crimes have occurred. The board recommends strengthening current restorative justice programs in the country and expanding these, something that is, should be a crucial component of the school syllabus. Support should be given to practitioners who are currently engaged in this work and ways to roll out these successful programs further should be encouraged. An example of such restorative justice work are the educational programs provided by the South African Holocaust and Genocide Foundation in their three centers located in Johannesburg, Cape Town, and Durban. Two examples of restorative justice that I would like to share with you from our experiences. First is the case of Mwebo Lamini. This dates back to 2015, when Lamini, who was then the chairperson of the Student Representative Council at the University of the Witwatersrand, made a number of anti-Semitic comments on social media and during a radio interview. For example, he expressed his admiration for Hitler and he called Jews hypocritical, uncircumcised devils in heart. The South African Human Rights Commission failed to take action on the matter despite our constant follow-ups. 
However, in the second half of 2020, there was a breakthrough. We were advised by the Human Rights Commission that they would be dropping the case as they had been unable to contact Dlamini. However, our organization was informed by somebody who was working with him that he had moderated his views, wanted to have a meeting with us and to apologize to the community. There was a meeting that was mediated by the South African Human Rights Commission, and it was held at the Johannesburg Holocaust and Genocide Center with representatives from the Human Rights Commission and our leadership. Lamini was genuinely remorseful and did not shy away at all from admitting wrongdoing on his part. It's really our belief that this engagement transformed someone who had been almost an enemy of the Jewish community into not only a friend, but an ally. A second example is that of the Sneaker Heads Group in 2018. The Jewish Board of Deputies laid criminal charges against two Johannesburg men, Tami Sidat and Mohammed Hatia, in response to their threatening and anti-Semitic comments made in a WhatsApp group called Sneaker Heads. However, following a meaningful engagement between the two young men and the leadership of our organization, charges were ultimately dropped and an apology was made. In terms of our agreement, Hatia and Sidat both expressed regret at having posted the comments and they unequivocally apologized in writing to the South African Jewish community and the Jewish members of the Sneakerhead group. It was agreed that they would both attend a program at the Holocaust and Genocide Center in Johannesburg to learn more about fighting bigotry and intolerance. The meeting was really a moving one for everyone concerned. There was no doubt that the individuals were genuinely remorseful for what they had done and that they wished to make amends. And comments by their family who had accompanied them also showed a sincere desire to address whatever harm had been done and to move forward in a spirit of peace and reconciliation. The administrator of the Sneakhead WhatsApp group remarked on what a positive difference it had made for those in conflict with each other simply to sit down face to face and resolve the issues between them. An observation by the 16-year-old complainant as he left the meeting was that he had been profoundly affected by the realization that the people who he had assumed like him, they were able to connect and break down stereotypes. And this is what we need more of in our country. These are just two examples of many cases that we have successfully addressed in this manner. The SAJBD is committed to building a South Africa where people accept and respect the rights of others to hold different viewpoints, irrespective of whether or not we agree with them. In conclusion, hate crimes and hate speech are not reconcilable with the democratic principles of equality and human rights for all, as envisioned in South Africa's constitution and our Bill of Rights. These acts of hate damage social cohesion and have no place in a country that is still healing from the wounds of our oppressive and racist past. Hate crimes not only harm the individual they are directed against, but they serve as a message to the larger group that the victim is seen to represent. These message crimes often take place in an environment where bigotry and discrimination is seen as socially acceptable. The consequences of hate crimes and hate speech are far-reaching. Hate not only diminishes the dignity of others, but also damages the social fabric and makes inclusivity impossible. Hate enshrines at chauvinism, perpetuates suspicion, fear, insecurity. In short, hate demeans us all, and it divides the people in South Africa, hindering our efforts to come together and to address pressing, pressing concerns such as poverty, unemployment, gender-based violence and crime. 
The South African Jewish Board of Deputies therefore welcomes this discussion on the bill. And we hope that a bill on hate crimes is passed very soon. An effective and comprehensive hate crimes and hate speech bill would send a strong message any form of prejudice is unacceptable in our society. It would assist the police and prosecutors in investigating, charging, and prosecuting hate crimes and hate speech. It would give the courts meaningful sentencing guidelines, and it would allow for the effective recording of data so that we could better monitor and understand the nature and scope of the problem to be able to come up with effective remedies. History has taught us that what ends in violence and genocide and crimes against humanity begins with words and hateful, isolated actions. Essential to the efforts of combating hate is the need to expand and support initiatives and educational programs on tolerance so that South Africa can be a nation where diversity is truly respected and embraced. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, uh, Ms. Baranov. Uh, members, are there any questions to the Jewish Board of Deputies? Honorable Swart. Thank you, Chair, and good morning to Ms. Baranov and Ms. Khan, and thank you for your passion. We all oppose all forms of anti-Semitism and stand with you in this regard, most certainly. And I, particularly from our side, you will know we have a history of that as well. Could I just ask you, I appreciate your strong sentiments when it comes to hate crimes. I do, um, and, and we will probably share that. But when it comes to the hate speech part of the bill, I hear your passion for restorative justice, and that is something that we've pioneered over the years with the Children's Child Justice Bill. I hear the example you cited of the Dlamini matter, which is really very, very passionate and powerful, how to um, sit together and resolve these issues. And so when you discuss the issue which of restorative justice, one of the concerns with hate speech provisions in this bill, as opposed to the hate speech provisions in Papuda, is that there isn't um, space for restorative justice approach. As you're aware, the approach in Papuda is a civil approach, which does also have scope for a criminal approach. But do you not think Firstly, that one should rather look at enhancing the implementation of the hate speech provisions in Papuda, given the court precedence already. And secondly, the very important point you make about resources for the Human Rights Commission, for example. Um, I took issue with a member of parliament last week in parliament for criticizing the Masuka judgment and the SA Human Rights Commission's role in that. We know the resource constraints there. Rather looking at um, capacitating Papuda and as opposed to the hate speech provisions in this bill, that I'd like you to just um, touch on, on, on that side of things, particularly the approach in the hate crimes, hate speech bill, which is purely a criminal approach without much space for a restorative justice approach. And maybe 
if you are in agreement, you might want to suggest amendments should you, um, because you're part of the hate crimes group, which supports both aspects, the hate crimes and hate speech, you might want to suggest written improvements to bring in a restorative approach when it comes to hate speech in this bill. Thank you so much. Thank you, Honorable Sartre. Are there any other members who have questions or comments or want to make comments? Uh, Ms. Baranoff, can you respond to Honorable Swartz's comments and questions? Thank you so much, Honorable Chair. Yes, um, Honorable Swart, we really do feel that restorative justice is a crucial component of all of the legislation dealing with hate in our country. And we do feel that, as we mentioned in our presentation, that it should be emphasized in the current uh, prevention and combating of hate crimes and hate speech bill. And we also believe that uh, PECUDA and the other bodies that we have that deal with hate in our country should be strengthened and that restorative justice should be a key aspect of their work too. But we have so much at our disposal as a country, which is incredibly progressive and in theory works brilliantly, but we feel that a focus on resources of capacity, financial resources, being able to deal with cases effectively and efficiently really does need to be a focus, both in this bill and in Papuda. But I will hand over also to our National Director, Wendy Kahn, for her thoughts on this. I'm happy with what Alana said, but I think, you know, we, we do feel very strongly in terms of the, the hate speech um, being incorporated into the bill. Um, with the Masuku case that we were recently involved with and, and the John Polani case before it, um, we did see the definition um, to looking for at, at, at harmful speech as opposed to hurtful. And we are quite supportive of that um, in terms of freedom of expression. Um, it, it, we certainly feel that that. that that the focus on harmful speech, incitement, threats um, should, should be incorporated into the bill. Thank you very much, Ms. Khan. Are there any questions, further questions, members? None. Uh, thank you very much to the South African Jewish Board of Deputies for your presentation. Can we now uh, invite Hate Khan's working group? Thank you, Honorable Chair. Uh, my name is Sokasa. I'm, I'm from Amnesty International South Africa, and I'm here as the chair of the Hate Crimes Working Group, and I'm joined by the deputy chairperson of the Hate Crimes Working Group, Toza Manjobe, as well as the coordinator of the Hate Crimes uh, Working Group, um, Sanya Bonman. And uh, Sanya will be making the presentation uh, now, and I will be the main speaker, and they will largely join me during the, the, uh, the Q&A session. Uh, just to begin, and I, I have, we have 20 minutes. Thank you, Honorable Chair. Um, <clears throat> Uh, the, the, the previous speaker, Elena, has already done a part of my job, uh, which is to introduce ourselves uh, as the Hate Crimes Working Group. Uh, so uh, just to add on what she has already explained, uh, we as the Hate Crimes Working Group, we are a multi-sectoral civil society organization and um, civil society organizations and individuals set up in 2009 to spearhead advocacy and reform initiatives pertaining to the hate crimes in South Africa and the region. 
Um, it is important to note that we are a diverse coalition with diverse areas of work, but that we are united in the focus on, on hate crimes and hate speech against minorities and marginalized groups. So just to uh, bring you up to speed as to what we want to focus on when it comes to this particular presentation, as you would know, Chair, that we have made substantive written submissions on the bill and direct the committee's attention to those for more detailed enactments um, when it comes to supporting our position. However, with the limited time available today, we want to highlight a, a, a limited number of those submissions and focus on specific provisions of the bill. So, Chair, if we, we go to section one, which deals with the definitions, uh, we'd like to draw the attention to, uh, we'd like to draw the attention when it comes to words like uh, associate, which is contained in the definitions of, of the bill. We suggest that the inclusion of the term associates in the, in the definition section to be defined as, a family, as family members, colleagues, friends, and other possible connections to a victim. It is important to define the term given it is used in, a, in, in the section on victim impact statements. We also suggest using the term associates in the sections setting out the elements of the hate crimes and speech. It is simpler and easier to read as a catchphrase in place in a place of okay, sorry, in place of listing all possible personal connections to victims in relevant sections. When it comes to the term harm, we are very concerned uh, about the lack of clarity provided by the current definition in the bill and about the uncertainty it will cause in the interpretation of the law. The term harm is central to the definition of hate speech, yet in consultation with our members, it became clear there is significant confusion about the meaning of the definition as currently formulated. To define harm as emotional, psychological, physical, social, and economic harm merely adds adjectives uh, and does not, in fact, define harm on how, <clears throat> or sorry, or how it is different to hurt. This practical question was central in the in the matter between Tolani and South, the South African Human Rights Commission and another one. And it will continue to cause legal uncertainty in the interpretation uh, of the bill. If it, if, it is not, if it is not addressed at this particular stage. We submit that, Chair, when it comes to the term intersex, it should be removed from the definition section of the bill. This is because, this is because other listed characteristics uh, and grounds which are included in, this, in section three and section four are not defined in the definition section of the bill. We submit that it is in, it, in the absence of definitions for all the listed characteristics and grounds, it is better to not favor one over others. It is enough to simply ensure that intersex is included in a listed, in, in a listed characteristics and grounds in the list provided in section three, subsection one, and section four, subsection one A2. This also allows for progressive interpretation over time as the understanding of diverse sex characteristics within society more generally deepens, changes, or becomes more nuanced. Chair, moving to the section, uh, section three, which deals with hate crimes, we are broadly supportive of the framing of this offense. However, we submit that uh, gender neutrality wording should be used throughout the bill by replacing him or her with them. It is necessary to include gender expression as a, lit, as a listed characteristic in section, in section three, subsection one H, for the sake of completeness. 
It is necessary to include asylum seeker as a listed uh, characteristic in sections three, subsection one K, for the sake of completeness. Given the necessary distinction in the list of characteristics between sex and gender, section three, subsection one H, the listing of sex in section three, subsection one P, should include sex characteristics. We support the contemplated role of the director of public prosecutions in this, in this section. However, we submit that the section should be drafted in a gender neutral way by replacing him or her with them. We also strongly submit that there should be an express legal obligation on the director of public prosecutions and their delegate to automatically provide written reasons to a, to a complainant or their associates when it comes to a decision that has been taken to decline to prosecute a charge of hate crime. This can be achieved by the addition of a new section, subsection four, sorry, a new section three, subsection four, as outlined in our written submission. Moving to section five, which deals with the impact, with the victim impact statements. <clears throat> As the, as the hate crimes working group, we are encouraged by the uh, by the by the provision of the require that requires rather a victim's uh, authorization when a person other than the, uh, the victim is making a victim impact statement. We wish to point out that the hate crimes in South Africa regularly lead to the death of the victim. In other words, a victim may not be able to either state either make a VIS themselves or indeed authorize anyone else to do so on their behalf. A hate crime is a hate message. Is <clears throat> a hate crime is a, is a is a message crime rather. And while there, there may be an individual victim of the crime, the impact is also felt by the community or the group to which they belong. For this reason, we submit that a prosecutor should be empowered by the bill to, to obtain expert input on a VIS from the interest groups and organizations who work directly with the community or group to which victims belong. This will greatly assist the court to understand the impact of the hate crime, not only on individual victims and their associates, but the broader group to which the victim belongs, especially if a hate crime caused a victim's death. Also, when a victim died because of a hate crime, therefore, nonetheless, be, there should rather be nonetheless uh, mechanisms for their voice and the voice of others like them to be heard. This is both appropriate and necessary, sorry, this is both uh, appropriate, and appropriate and necessary given the hate crimes as a message crime spread for, <clears throat> as, message, as, as message crimes spread fear and affect the, the equality and dignity of entire communities and groups of people. While we are encouraged by the fact that under this section, a prosecutor must consider the interest of the victim and provide the court with a VIS, we are concerned by the addition of where appropriate, which appears to undermine the mandatory nature of the provision. We submit this can be remedied by a, a, by a creation, by a creation of, of obligation on prosecutors to provide the court with written reasons whenever it is not possible to provide a VIS through the addition of section 2A. Moving to section six, uh, uh, which uh, deals with penalties and orders. It is our understanding from the communication with the department uh, that the section contemplates the following. 
regarding section 6, subsection 1, hate crimes may be sentenced in accordance with all the various sentencing options ordinarily available to court, uh, depending on, on that court's penal jurisdiction. Section 6, subsection 2, that if a minimum sentence already applies to the base and that the sentence should be handed down by the presiding officer unless there are substantial and compelling reasons to deviate from the minimum sentence framework, that, that in certain cases, the hate element of the crime is also to be regarded as an, an aggravating factor for sentencing. If we are correct in our understanding of the intention of the drafters, the language in the bill does not express that intention. In fact, the bill creates a new self-standing crime of hate crime. Lastly, we understand from the department that all hate crimes will be heard in the regional courts. However, there is no provision to this effect in the bill. Moving to section seven, which deals with directives, Chair. As the hate crimes working group, uh, we support the inclusion of directives for the National Prosecuting Authority. However, we recommend that Section 7 be subdivided into further additional parts to require training in relation to the directives. Directives should go hand in hand with training. It is, essentially, it is especially important to expressly extend the requirement for the directives to the South African Police Service in the form of national instructions or standing orders, again, with consumer training. The inclusion of the South African Police Service under the general implementation provisions in Section 8 is not sufficient to underscore the critical role played by the South African Police Service in the detection of hate crime and hate speech. Moving to Section 9, which deals with prevention, Chair, we have specific objections which are as follows. Section 9, subsection 1 places only a generic legal duty on the state and only two chapter nine institutions. So we believe that it is nonsensical and impractical to expect every single state institution to play some undefined generalized role in preventing hate crimes. It is entirely unclear how institutions will be held accountable for such undefined obligation. Furthermore, it is unclear why the South African Human Rights Commission, the Gender Commission for Gender Equality, would have a role to play in prevention, while the CRL does not, does not have a role to play. Section 9, subsection 1, on a plain reading, only creates a duty to promote awareness of the criminalization of hate crimes and hate speech. This is obviously and wholly insufficient for the prevention of hate crimes in South, in a, in South African society. Merely making our society aware of certain actions now constitutes a hate crime does not um, <clears throat> Now, does not uh, begin to address the root causes of societal hate and prejudice, which gives rise to the hate crime. This section will simply not achieve prevention. Section 9, subsection 2 places duty on the president to de designate certain executive departments for the development of certain programs. However, we submit that such departments can and should be specifically identified and listed in the principal legislation thereby creating justifiable legal obligations and legal certainty. Section 9, subsection 2 properly belongs under Section 7 and should be removed from the prevention. Section 9, subsection 2C 
is unrealistic and impractical. And we submit that principal legislation should create uncertainty about the extent, uh, about exact state departments that have the legal obligation to assist victims with lodging complaints. The section should list the specific departments and or state institutions where such help can be sought. Similarly, section nine, subsection two D should create certainty about the exact state departments responsible for the training of public officials. This particular section also fails to recognize and draw on the wealth of knowledge and skills available in the civil society sector, which could be tapped for training purposes. Section nine, subsection three should not be limited to presiding officers alone and should contemplate similar training for, for public prosecutors. Chair, we would like to, um, <clears throat> sorry. <clears throat> sorry, yes, to, to, um, to just go back a bit in terms of section nine, subsection three, we should, we should not be limited to presiding officers alone and should contemplate similar training for public uh, prosecutors. So therefore, we remind uh, the portfolio committee that the cabinet has adopted the national plan of action to combat racism and racial discrimination, xenophobia, and related job uh, intolerance. The NAP is, direct, is a direct result of the Devon Declaration and incorporates the definition contains the, contained in the seed. The document sets out the following key sector actors in South Africa's commitment to eradication of discrimination and intolerance in the various forms. That is the state, the chapter line institutions, civil society, private sector, labor sector, media, academia, and sport, sporting bodies. If these key actors can be specifically expressly listed in the NAP, we submit that they, they ought to be similarly expressly listed in the bill, which will become primarily, primary legislation in due time. This will strengthen the legislation, create accountability, and show proper delineation of legal duties and interdepartmental cooperation while avoiding potential role confusion at a later stage. Sir, so, uh, Chair, moving to... Um, to Your left is five minutes. Thank you, Chair. Moving to the learning, uh, to, to experiences or learnings that we, 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 we've received from the sea. As the income working groups, group rather, we further submit that the general comment number 35 from the committee on the elimination of racial discrimination contains important observation and best practices for the prevention of racial discrimination. A copy of this general comment accompanies this submission. Its observations and recommendations can be easily extrapolated to include other forms of prejudice, and we submit that the Portfolio Committee and the, just, and the Department of Justice must be guided by these evidence-based observations and findings. We submit, that, we submit that the most relevant observation from the General Comment Number 35 for the purpose of prevention is the way Article 7 of the Convention highlights the role of teaching, education, culture, and important information in the promotion of understanding, tolerance, and understanding and tolerance, deterrence of hate crimes, through criminalization alone does not constitute prevention. It must be complemented by a, by a broadly educational approach, precisely because racism, homophobia, xenophobia, and other forms of hatred and prejudice can be the product of, among other things, indoctrination and inadequate education. Article 7 of the Convention, uh, convention rather, framed in, framed in mandatory language, requires state parties 
to adopt uh, immediate effective measures, particularly in the fields of teaching, education, culture, and information, with the view of combating prejudice, which lead to discrimination and to promoting understanding, understanding, tolerance, and friendship, as well as to propagating universal human rights principles, including those of the Convention. convention. This means that uh, this means that state departments and institutions responsible for education, culture, and information, at a very minimum, uh, are all critical role players in preventing prejudice and, and, and discrimination. This implicates Chapter Nine institutions, uh, the Department of Basic Education, the Department of Co Co Cooperative Governance and Traditional Affairs, the Government Communication and Information System, the Department of Home Affairs, the Department of Higher Education and Training, the Department of Labor the de and Employment, and the Department of Social Development, the Department of Sports and Arts and Culture, the Department of Women, Youth, and, pers and Persons with Disabilities, and the National House of Traditional Leaders. For this reason, we submit that these departments at national and provincial level cannot be omitted from the bill if prevention efforts are to be meaningful and effective. Their involvement is a bare essential for addressing the root cause of the hate, of the hate and prejudice in South African society, thereby preventing crimes driven by hate and prejudice. And finally, sir, Chair, we, we bring your attention to uh, the, the costing of the bill. We note that uh, while various versions of the bill have been available since 2016, the bill remains uncosted. We strongly contest the, asset, the assertion in the explanatory memorandum that the bill, uh, that the bill, <coughs> to the bill rather, the, uh, that the contemplated work involved with the prevention and combating of hate crimes and hate speech, which will involve cons considerable interdepartmental cooperation, can be done within existing budgets. The explanatory memorandum to the bill states that it will be implemented using the existing resources and budgets within departments. However, in the absence of the costing accompanying the explanatory memorandum, such assertion cannot be verified. The Hate Crimes Working Group asserts that the bill will require changes to the current ways of preventing, detecting, and prosecuting crimes. Indeed, it is it is adding new crimes to the statute books, and this is in itself, will, this in itself rather will, will necessitate ensuring that the changes are made to the, to the way in which the SAPS the, and the NPA, the courts, approach such issues, as well as the way that other stakeholders and government duty bearers deal with such crimes. We submit that it cannot be business as usual and that the costing, the costing will, will, <clears throat> will can indicate commitment to the implementation of the bill. The Hate Crimes Working Group is deeply concerned that the lack of costing signals the lack of, plan, of a plan to implement this bill. It will be impossible to implement without substantial commitment of resources. We remain disappointed that this, is, this commitment is still lacking. I thank you, Chair. We would welcome thank the you. questions. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Kasa, representing Hate Crimes Working Group. Members, are there any questions or comments? Honorable Stephen Swart. Thank you, Chair. I'm leaving the camera off just for connections. Um, thank you, Mr. Kaza, for your presentation. I, I, I think the point that you make about poor implementation is a very, very valid point. 
and we as a committee take it very seriously. We passed the gender-based violence amendment bills and we made sure that we asked um, departments how they're going to implement the bills. So I think that is a very valid um, point that you make, particularly where it indicates in the memorandum that no additional funding is being sought to implement the bill. So I also fully understand a strong criminal justice approach when it comes to hate crimes. I'll be the first to support that in a very strong measure. However, given the fact of capacity constraints and poor implementation of laws, would you not consider that to add a whole section about hate speech, which is not properly funded and which is already covered by the Equality Act, which has a criminal and a civil approach, should one not consider putting your resources into an existing law that is already being tested in the courts rather than passing a second aspect? I'm speaking purely about the hate speech side, which is uncosted, no additional funding. Is that something that one should consider? That's the first point. And then secondly, Again, you make the strong point that fighting um, hate crimes and hate speech cannot only be done through criminalization. Now, again, I want to ask you about the issue of restorative justice approach when it comes to hate speech, as opposed to a criminal, purely criminal approach as adopted in the bill. The restorative justice approach, which the South African Jewish Board of Deputies testified to has been very effective, given the Lamini example, given that the SA Jewish Board of Deputies is part of the hate crimes group. Is that not something that should also be considered, given that the hate speech part of this bill only focuses on criminal approach and does not have a restorative justice approach? Thank you so much. Thank you, Honorable Swart. But I would just like to appeal to members uh, that uh, when we ask questions, we must make it easier for people to respond. And if in one question you have 10 sub-questions, it makes it very difficult uh, for a member to grasp all of those questions and to respond appropriately. And My apologies, Jay, for that. My apologies. Yes, um, yes thank you very much, Mr. Kasa. Thank you, Honourable Chair, and thank you, Honourable Swart, for that particular those particular questions. I guess uh, when it comes to assisting hate crimes working group, uh, we are on record regarding the hate, uh, the hate speech part of the bill. Previously, we've we've expressed our concerns uh, regarding the, 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 that particular part of the bill, as we believe that it will delay. Um, it, 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 will, it, it will delay in terms of it will delay the other part when it comes to the hate crimes part of the bill, which has been our main focus. And I'm sure you would have noticed from our particular uh, presentation that the main focus has been on the hate crimes part of the bill rather than the, the, the hate speech part. But however, I can also hand over to my colleague Sanja to Sanja to uh, to to add on what I've already mentioned. Good morning, Honourable Chair and Honourable Members. I will also keep my camera off um, for the, the sake of everyone's data. 
to add to what Mr. Kasa, our chair, has said about the position on hate speech of, with regards to the hate crimes working group, we have um, in the past had difficulty with its inclusion because we've been so concerned that the controversial nature of the provisions would delay the promulgation of the hate crimes provision, um, which we are all very anxious about. And you will notice that we put in the chat for you this morning um, an advocacy brief outlining hate crimes and hate speech incidents that our different members have dealt with only in 2021 alone. And it is very clear that hate crime is a, a serious problem that, that people are, are dying as a result of. And so we are anxious for, for the hate crimes provisions to make it onto the statute books. However, we do accept at this stage that the Department of Justice and indeed the legislature um, may well be um, desirous of taking what is a sort of a disparate position around hate speech in different laws, different statutes, including PEPUDA, um, including perhaps the Intimidation Act and similar pieces of legislation, and consolidating that into one criminal position in um, the hate crimes and hate speech bill. And this is not an unusual approach, um, and we can certainly see that kind of approach being taken in relation to the common law crime of rape, for example, which really was only a common law crime um, for a considerable period until that common law crime was codified and updated um, and included in the Sexual Offences Act in 2007. And so we now view the inclusion of hate speech in this bill as a similar move to update and consolidate um, around hate speech. In addition to that, the various members of the Hate Crimes Working Group do believe that hate speech and hate crime are very closely linked and that hate speech very often turns into hate crime. Um, and so while we are still concerned that the inclusion of hate speech will um, delay the promulgation of the, of the bill because it is controversial, and indeed, um, as we can hear today in this meeting, it is dominating uh, the, the debate, uh, we, are, we are anxious for the hate crimes provisions to be passed and so um, accept that, um, that its inclusion um, is, is, is here potentially to stay. Um, especially also because we believe South Africans are very fed up with racist hate speech. And, um, and so we accept that it is up to the legislature to, to choose whether um, the, the, the provision should be included at this stage um, or not. Thank you very much. Any further comments or questions, members? Uh, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, can we have the next one? The restorative justice center. Thank you, Mr. Kasa, and to, to your other colleague. Restorative justice center. Uh, yes, good morning, Chair. My name is Mike Batley. I'm uh, from the restorative justice center. Thank you. Uh, you are welcome, sir. Thank you very much, sir. Um, would I be able to share my screen, please? Yes. Can you assist him to share his screen? Uh, morning, Chair. You can go ahead. We'll proceed, Mr. Bailey. Thank you. Let me just get that going. Mr. Bailey, you have 20 minutes. Thank you, Chair. 
Good morning, honourable members. Uh, thank you very much for this opportunity. As I said, my name is Mike Backley. I'm a social worker by profession, and I've uh, headed up the Restorative Justice Centre for many years. We are also proud members uh, of the Hate Crimes Working Group. I thought it would be useful to give some clarification about restorative justice. I'm very intrigued at the conversation and the focus that it's had this morning. Um, and I will be then referring to and highlighting some key points in the written submission that we made. And I'd like to lead into that by referring to what seems to be both the Ministry and the Department of Justice's view of restorative justice generally. Um, but obviously particularly in relation to hate crimes and hate speech, which is that if the purpose of hate crimes legislation is to provide for harsher sentencing, then it doesn't make sense to utilise restorative justice as this helps us with um, mitigating measures. Now, I understand that logic, but I think that that's a very narrow and limited view of, the, uh, of, of what restorative justice is. And so I think it's helpful to make the, the following distinctions. First of all, restorative justice is not about uh, providing a soft option in responding to crime. It's primarily a different way of thinking about crime and justice issues. And it helps us by providing constructive ways of holding uh, offenders accountable. So apart from being a way of thinking about crime and justice issues, and I'll go into the, the detail of that right now, we also need to distinguish between restorative justice processes um, where we bring parties together, and there we use the terms variously like uh, victim offender mediation or uh, restorative justice conferencing or restorative justice meetings, but any uh, situation where we bring the parties together with the help of a facilitator, and then other interventions that contain restorative elements, uh, like life skills or vocational skills. So I know some members would be familiar with the uh, Child Justice Act. I know certainly Honourable Swart was there when we um, uh, implemented the, the Child Justice Act a number of years ago. Um, and so that whole provision that is in the Child Justice Act for diversion programs um, uh, referred to this. But I think that distinction then between processes, the idea of the parties coming together versus other programs, which can be a, a range of things which would be more didactic and which would not necessarily then involve the, the parties coming together. I think it's also important to uh, bear in mind and to understand clearly that both of these restorative justice processes, as well as the other programs, the other interventions, can be done at a a number of different points in the criminal justice system. So it can be done as an alternative to a trial. Um, and so that would be part of the, the diversion programs. But it can also be done as an adjunct to sentencing. So after there's been a conviction and as part of informing and indeed crafting the sentence. But then it could also be done post-sentence. If somebody um, has served a, a, a term of imprisonment, it could be done as part of the person's um, reintegration into society. 
So I think it's important to remember those distinctions because otherwise we tend to think of that restorative to justice can only be done with um, less severe situations. But if we remember that it can be done at any point in the criminal justice system, then actually we can deal with um, any kind of crime, right from the kind of examples that the Jewish Board of Deputies was very helpfully giving earlier, right through to your very serious crimes of um, uh, rape and, and murder and, and attempted uh, instances like that, but obviously then at different points in the system. So let's review restorative justice concepts. Restorative justice sees crime as primarily being a violation of people and relationships. Obviously, it is breaking the law, but the restorative justice view is that it's the violation of people and relationships that really matters. These violations create obligations, and the central obligation is to put right the wrongs. Restorative justice regards crime as being about disrespect. Um, my colleagues just now referred to hate crimes as being um, messaging crimes, and, and I think that comes out very clearly in that as well. And so conversely, justice is about respect. And justice demands three things of us, that we respect the life of others, that we respect the property of others, and that we respect the feelings of others. Interestingly, punishment doesn't feature uh, in that. So um, just to bear that in mind, that often we use punishment as a way of imposing sanctions on people, but that um, from a restorative justice view is not the main thing about justice. Slightly different way then of looking at it is that there are these three pillars of restorative justice, harms and needs, so of course that's of the victims, but also of other people and more communities more generally. That idea then of the obligation to put right, and then thirdly, the idea of engaging stakeholders, stakeholders being victims, offenders, and community members. And so we can pull that together in what we call the, the justice flower, growing in that soil of respect and having as its fruit, putting right, and on its leaves, focusing on harms and needs, addressing obligations, and involving stakeholders with inclusive and collaborative processes. That central idea then of putting right means that we need to focus on harms. We need to be concerned, first of all, with who got hurt, what are their needs, how do we address those needs. But once we've done that, then we can look at the underlying causes. Why, why did this incident happen in the first place at all the levels? The personal issues, the interpersonal conflict that perhaps played a role, as well as the environmental um, and societal factors. As I said, restorative justice is a specific way of thinking about crime and justice issues. But often, yeah, the idea then of retribution, the way of thinking from a, a, retribu a retributive perspective means that we then do put punishment um, very centrally. But the problem with this is that we know that it actually does not work very well. And research indicates that apart from the general deterrent effect of having a criminal justice system, there's actually no evidence to show that sentences have a deterrent effect on individuals or on other potential offenders. Um, and that's, this is especially so when we are tempted to impose harsher sentences for more severe crimes. Um, simply imposing more punishment 
doesn't have that effect. Also, we know that punishment is very ineffective at changing behavior. And I would um, want to urge our members to bear that in mind um, with the calls for, for harsher sentencing um, for, for hate crimes and hate speech. So you may ask then, why do we support um, hate crimes legislation? So I've spoken to this in a bit more detail uh, in our written submission. But I think it's primarily then because of the significance of the state's denunciation of actions as wrong. So when the state then, as it would in, in hate crime legislation, say that these particular actions are wrong, that does in itself send a powerful message. And then with that is the implicit promise of active protection of victims and indeed a sense of solidarity with victims and, and the protection that goes with that. So I think those would be from a restorative perspective, um, not because we want harsher punishment, but because of these implied messages um, and the significance of these messages that comes with that legislation. In the uh, written submission, um, there's a section then starting on page six that talks about uh, diversion practice. So I give some background to that, as well as some of the effectiveness of diversion. Uh, also refer to the Child Justice Act and the, the way that diversion and restorative justice is working there. And then I also list the superior court precedents um, from South Africa that supports restorative justice. We'd also like to draw your attention to the fact that um, Papuda um, on page eight of, of our submission actually encourages informal and restorative measures. So I understand that that is generally talking in terms of, of civil remedies, but the fact that it is, it is already part of our thinking um, in that act, that it encourages restorative measures, although I don't think that we've begun to um, utilize those opportunities adequately. And the issue of resourcing obviously plays into that. Um, but I think it's very important to note that in saying that restorative justice should be a major tool that we use to respond to hate crimes and hate speech, um, it's not actually a new thing because we've got a lot of precedent for that in the Child Justice Act and in Papuda and indeed in our superior court um, uh, precedents. Page nine, I highlight um, quite some, some international research that has been done, and I'm going to go into a bit of detail about that in a moment. Um, also refer to the research that's been done in South Africa by the uh, Psychological Association for the Hate Crimes Working Group. And then included also some perspectives from advocates and service providers working with hate crimes and hate speech during the course of the research that I did for, um, for this presentation. Let me just spend a few moments then giving you a little bit of detail about some research from the United Kingdom. So this is a book that was based on the doctoral study of the author, uh, certain Mark Walters. Um, it's on page 10 of the submission. So uh, the research is based on two practices uh, in London, um, where this work has been done since 2008. And over 60 interviews were conducted with victims, restorative practitioners, and police officers who all participated in these restorative practices. 
The author also observed 18 separate restorative justice meetings, many of which involved face-to-face dialogue between the victim and offender and their supporters. The findings are really significant. So from this, this community uh, mediation scheme, the majority of the complainant victims who were interviewed, so 17 out of the 23, uh, said that the mediation process directly improved their emotional well-being, that their levels of anger, anxiety, and fear were reduced directly after the mediation process. And the most common reasons for this were that they felt they could play an active part in their own conflict resolution. Um, they were able to explain to the perpetrator and others the harms that they'd experienced. They felt supported by the mediators who listened to their version of events. And the perpetrator then signed an agreement promising to desist from further hate incidents. And uh, if I think back to the um, examples that the Jewish Board of Deputies gave, um, I think you can see all of those elements uh, would have played a role in that. Furthermore, in 11 out of 19 of separate cases of ongoing hate crime incidents researched at the Southwark Project, they ceased directly after the mediation process had taken place. And a further six cases stopped after the community mediator engaged with other agencies um, as part of the, the broader processes like schools, social services, community police officers, and housing officers. So when I first saw this, I was sort of quite blown away at, at just the um, incredibly positive response that this researcher had found. Now, I'm mindful that South Africa is not um, the United Kingdom. There are many differences, but I think it does show what is possible. Um, and it does show that many of the concerns that one might have about whether it's appropriate to do mediation in cases like this um, are not necessarily um, uh, founded. That's not to say that it's appropriate in all cases. And as with all restorative justice mediation, um, participation must always be voluntary and, and nobody should be uh, um, pressured to participating in anything. The submission ends then with a discussion about some of the concerns um, and suggesting that we should frame our response to hate crimes and hate speech much more as part of crime prevention and building social cohesion. So that's on page 12 of our submission. And um, I go through a number of uh, draw some conclusions and make a number of recommendations on page 13, um, including um, suggesting a definition of harm that would elaborate on the current definition in the Act or in the Bill um, that is drawn from uh, some of the restorative justice literature. Uh, I think that's all I wanted to highlight um, from our submission. Um, thank you very much, uh, Chair and Honourable Members, for your attention. Thank you very much, Mr. Buckley. Members, any questions to Mr. Bartley, who was representing the Restorative Justice Centre? Honorable Steve Swart. Thank you, Chair. Just very briefly, Chair, you might have been part of our process with the Child Justice Bill when we dealt with restorative justice, so um, going back a number of years. But yes, I, I was. Just find, mm -hmm. Yes, yes. So um, we are joined... Um, 
and I must say, just to commend you again, Mike, um, Mr. Batty, sorry. I'll leave my camera off because of uh, connection. But I, I just wanted to ask you, given the strong focus on restorative justice, would you consider submitting a proposed amendment that one could include restorative justice process in, I suppose it's probably, you, you refer to both the hate crime side and the hate speech side, but maybe it might be more suitable both sides, but probably easier sell when it comes to hate speech side of things with the restorative justice approach. I did raise this with the department. They did not think that there'd be any objection to an insertion of a clause which allows a discretion to apply restorative justice approach because I really like your approach of social compact and prevention. So would you consider that? Obviously, I can't speak on behalf of the committee, but that could be helpful to us. Um, th thank you, Honourable Sergeant. Yes, uh, I would certainly uh, support that. And in the, um, the recommendations that I make in the uh, presentation... Mr. Berkeley, Mr. Berkeley. Uh, I'm sorry, Chair. Yes, that's a little bit. Uh, I would like to recognise all other members, then you would uh, respond. Uh, uh, Dr. My apologies, Chair. No, no problem. Dr. Nivot Trachans. Thank you, Chairperson, and good morning to everyone present. Uh, thank you for the presentation uh, from the Restorative Justice Centre. I just want to ask, in terms of background, I'd like to know the background of the Restorative Justice Centre, that's the one thing. And then secondly, I would like to know if the Restorative Justice Centre has already worked with our Department of Correctional Services or the SAPS um, in, 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 in order to mediate, you know, um, restorative justice, because, you know, hate speech, you know, maybe it, it increases. Uh, children going to school, you know, children in schools maybe say things that they don't understand because they take it from home, and that is classified as hate speech. And there's an increase in hate crimes, especially against the LGBTQI uh, plus community. And so I wanted to know, you know, what is what is your background? Have you been involved in these kinds of things? I'm, I'm, you know, I like restorative justice, but in South Africa, um, I don't think we've done enough restorative justice, and our correctional centres are full and overcrowded and, and filling up. Um, so I, I just wanted to know what the background is of your centre. Have you worked with our uh, within the justice system on restorative justice issues? Thank you, Chair. Thank you, Mr. Butler. You can now respond. Thank you, Chair. Uh, so to respond to, to Honourable Swart first, um, I would certainly uh, endorse a, a, a clause giving a discretion about the use of, of restorative justice and then perhaps even putting it more strongly that it, it should um, always be considered. It's not to say that it would always be appropriate, but that it should always be considered as a possibility. And in the, the recommendations that I've made, um, I've given some suggestions as to how that could be done, uh, but primarily drawing on the template of the Child Justice Act. Um, I think that those can be important uh, with some variation, but, but they, 
think the Child Justice Act gives an excellent uh, format for being able to do that uh, and obviously adjust it then for, to include adults as well. Um, uh, Honourable Nirvot, uh, the Restorative Justice Centre that has been operating for the last 20 years as an NGO service provider in Pretoria. Um, and so we've done um, in excess of 3,000 uh, cases, um, both at the courts, so that's uh, primarily as an alternative, a, um, um, a diversion, um, some children, but mainly with adults. Um, and then we also have a project running with um, correctional services, with um, uh, doing victim-offender dialogue uh, prior to people being released um, um, on parole. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Berkeley. Have you worked with uh, the Association of South African Lotians? I'm sorry, the line broke up there, Chair. Have you worked with the Association of the South African Lotians, your law professors? Uh, no, I don't think so, sir. You have not? No. Okay. No, that's fine. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you for your presentation. Uh, can we now invite Catholic? I'm not sure whether the South African Catholic Bishop, but it's just written Catholic here. Committee Secretary, what is the full name of the organization? South African Catholic Bishops Conference, yes. Please. Thank you very much. Um, over to you, South African Catholic Bishops Conference. Have they joined? Yes, Chairperson, he is online. He is online. Can you check with him what is the challenge? Uh, members, can we take a five minutes break and come back at 10.52? Is that in Thank order? You. That's fine, Mr. Chair. Thank you very much.
Yeah, I believe they, they are with us. I call them and uh, they will get in. Yeah, he is here. I'm here, Mr. Chairperson. I'm here. Thank you very much. Um, can we start? You have 20 minutes to present. Thank you, Chairperson and uh, members of the committee. Thanks for the opportunity to speak to you about this. Unfortunately, I was not able this morning to um, listen to all the other presentations. So if I do repeat anything that has be already been said, I, I apologize for that. Um, in any event, I don't think I'll be taking up the full uh, 20 minutes. We don't have that much to say. <clears throat> um, I don't have a, a presentation as such. I believe that all members of the committee will have our written submission, which we uh, sent in last year. Let me begin by just uh, talking briefly about the hate crimes uh, side of, of the bill. Um, we all know that um, we have so many crimes that are motivated or exacerbated by hatred in this country. You can think of uh, xenophobic attacks and uh, corrective rape and all sorts of other horrible things which are happening. And it's correct that the criminal justice system obviously should take note of this and act against it. But our question is whether, in fact, it is necessary to create a special class of crimes called hate crimes, when really the only difference between them and any other crime is the matter of motive. Um, if we look at Clause 3.1, we see that a hate crime is an offence recognised under any law. So they're pre-existing offences. Um, and then it simply goes on to say, which is motivated by prejudice or intolerance. So it's not really a new class of crime, although it, it sounds that way when people talk about hate crimes, that, it's, that it is something new. Um, so if really what we are wanting to deal with here is the question of motive, then we question whether we need to go to this extent of, as I say, seeming to create a new class of crime, giving the impression that there is a whole set of new crimes out there that have been somehow discovered, like things like we have with cybercrime and so on, which are indeed new and didn't exist before. This is not the same thing. And that could cause a degree of confusion. It would also be a relatively easy thing simply to amend uh, the Criminal Procedure Act and the Criminal Law Amendment Act, the so-called Minimum Sentences Act, uh, simply to indicate to presiding officers that if they find that a particular murder or rape or assault or whatever else has been motivated by hatred, uh, that they are to take that into account specially when it comes to sentencing. So that's really our question. Do we need uh, to as it were, pretend that we have discovered a new set of crimes that need a new law to deal with them, can we not rather simply use the existing criminal statutes to accommodate this particular kind of a motive? If, however, it is decided that it is necessary to proceed with this creation of this new set of crimes, head crimes, then we would like to draw some attention to particular points in Clause 3.1 of the bill, uh, which seem to be perhaps a little bit unclear or, or uh, 
don't immediately make a lot of sense. Clause 3.1, for example, um, refers to the characteristics or perceived characteristics of the victim of the crime or his or her family member. Family member is not defined anywhere. And so the question is, what constitutes a family member um, and how far do we go? That's the sort of thing where one can quite imagine a court might have some difficulty applying the law. Um, and indeed, just you know, for, for legal clarity, um, anyone who falls foul of this law needs to know what it actually covers. So at the very least, uh, I would suggest that the, the idea of a family member needs to be somehow narrowed down or, or defined. And why is it only family members uh, to which this extends? And not just, for example, friends or associates or romantic partners and so on uh, of, of the victim. You know, it seems to be, in that sense, quite arbitrary and perhaps hasn't been fully thought through. Uh, then still with uh, 3.1, what is meant by association and support in the phrase the victim's association with or support for a group of persons. Once again, it's vague. Um, terms like association and support are extremely vague, very difficult to define, and therefore are they going to be very difficult to apply when this sort of thing comes before a court. Um, then... When we look at, at further at association with or support for, why should it apply only to a group of persons who share certain characteristics and not to an individual person who happens to have such characteristics? And again, that doesn't seem to make any sense. I can be, I will fall foul of this law if I commit a hate crime um, because of the victim's association with a group of people but not if the victim is associated only with a single individual who bears those characteristics. So once again, that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. And then in the list of um, characteristics A to P under section 3.1, we find that marital status, conscience, and pregnancy, which are all listed in the Constitution as grounds for unfair discrimination, have been left out of this list of characteristics. And again, it's not clear why, when all of the others have been included, those three should be left out. It is surely possible. Uh, it might be unusual, uh, it might be strange, but it is possible that someone could have a hatred of somebody else for, on a matter of conscience, for example, and commit a crime against that person because of something that, that's, that is motivated by that person's conscience, or even by their marital status. As I say, it might be very unlikely, um, but it certainly is possible. And things like uh, political affiliation and occupation and trade are included on this list um, when they are not immutable uh, characteristics of a person, such as their race and their age and their sex and so on. So again, we suggest that all of those points under 3.1 contribute to vagueness and uncertainty. Um, and perhaps they need some further definition uh, or tightening up. Um, otherwise, one can envisage that uh, when these matters eventually come before court, there's going to be room for a lot of 
uh, confusion there. So much for, oh, well, the other point about hate crimes is that we support um, the provision in Clause 3.3 that uh, prosecutions for such crimes should be authorized by the relevant DPP. Um, we think that such prosecutions should be uh, used sparingly and only when absolutely necessary. And it's correct that, therefore, a particular decision should be taken by the director of uh, public prosecutions. That echoes also the similar provisions in the uh, Prevention of Organized Crime Act when it comes to um, furthering the, uh, the racketeering and um, activities of a gang and things like that. That also has to be specifically um, authorized by the DPP. So that it seems to be consistent with that approach. Uh, moving into hate speech, uh, again, we can't deny the prevalence of hurtful and insulting outbursts. Um, this is, really does violate people's dignity, um, damages the social fabric, and of course also demeans the person who utters hate speech. But we question whether criminal legislation is the appropriate or the most effective way of combating what is essentially an, an attitudinal problem and a social problem. Um, and the more that we do try to, as it were, rein in or circumscribe what people can say, the more we risk uh, violating other fundamental freedoms, such as freedom of, of belief and opinion, and of course, freedom of expression, freedom of speech. And I'm sure that many other presenters have gone into much detail about this. We already have in uh, the Promotion of Equality and Prevention of Unfair Discrimination Act um, provisions that outlaw speech that advocates hatred or which is intended to be harmful or to incite violence. Um, limited grounds, yes, in that act in Papuda, but uh, that could easily be remedied by an amendment if it's felt necessary. Uh, and of course, we also have um, the Constitution itself, which circumscribes or limits free speech, free speech as not including uh, speech which is intended um, to, to be hatred, to incite violence, and so on. So once again, the question is, do we really need this? If we didn't have these hate speech provisions, would we be able to use existing statutes to achieve the same end, and it seems to us that the answer is yes, we could. Um, we've mentioned in our written submissions the question of the chilling effect, and again, I'm sure this has been brought up to you already this morning. We don't want a society where people become scared to open their mouths and to express opinions and to engage in debates because they have become oversensitive uh, to the possibility that what they say, even if it is very sincerely and genuinely meant, um, that it will be taken as advocacy of hatred, uh, or that it will be seen as something which causes harm to other people. We need to have room for robust exchange of opinions and, and uh, a robust approach to free speech. Are we balancing? Are we going to find the correct balance 
between the free speech and freedom of information rights and uh, what is ultimately the need to protect people's dignity by preventing hate speech, are we going to find the correct balance if this bill is passed? And I think it's questionable. Much will depend, obviously, on how courts ultimately interpret this statute. Um, they may find certain aspects of it unconstitutional. They may read in uh, certain definitions which are not there. But uh, the risk is there that this is going to go too far in the direction of curtailing uh, free speech, freedom of information, freedom of expression in various ways. Clause four of the bill, which deals with the offence of uh, hate speech, it may in itself be directly unconstitutional, since it very clearly limits the right to freedom of expression, without at the same time satisfying the conditions for limitation as set out in section 36 of the Constitution. One reason is that it uses the concept of harm um, as one of the, the two criteria for judging whether speech qualifies as hate speech. Um, clause 41A, small i, refers to the communications that have a clear intention to be harmful or to incite harm. And harm is in turn defined very, very widely as any emotional, psychological, physical, social, or economic harm. So even very trivial um, degrees, very minor kinds of harm, which you know, most people might be inclined just to ignore or to brush off, could qualify as hate speech. Is that where we want to go? Is that constitutionally justified? I suspect it's not constitutionally justified. Um, in effect, what's happening is that the prohibition of hate speech is being turned into a positive right that people have not to be offended or upset. And clearly, this is a very uh, subjective question. I may feel uh, upset or offended in, in my interiorly because somebody has said something to me, where, again, most other people would not feel at all upset by it. But if I do, then I have suffered harm. And then theoretically, the person who said whatever they said to me falls foul of this law. So it seems to go much too far. There is certainly no right in our constitution not to be offended or not to be upset. You could argue that the right to dignity can be extended into that area to, you know, to some degree, but it certainly can't be extended to the point that every single piece of subjective feeling of, of uh, upset or offense uh, can be covered. And yet that appears on, on one reading, the obvious reading of Section 4.1, uh, to be where this will take us. I've already mentioned um, that this places a major restriction or limitation on the right to freedom of expression. Um, the greater the extent of the limitation, the, the limitations clause of the Constitution tells us this, that the greater the extent of the limitation, the less likely it is to be justifiable in an open and democratic society. And Section 36 also tells us that the limitation of a right is only justifiable if there are no other less restrictive means to achieve the purpose. Um, and we suggest that this requirement could be satisfied by qualifying the word harm uh, in such a way that it excludes minor or very trivial utterances. 
and makes clear that the fact that someone who takes offense, that the mere fact that someone takes offense at the words of another is not in itself sufficient to establish harm or harmfulness. In other words, there needs to be some sort of objective uh, set of criteria here where both um, people who are in the business of promoting free speech, you know, commentators. minutes. Um, no, thanks. Uh, people in the media in particular, where they know exactly where the line is, where the line is that they may not cross. And also, uh, such a definition of harm would assist courts when they have to obviously then apply the definition and find out whether someone crossed the line or not. At the moment, it is just way too vague to be really at all useful. Specific concerns around the hate speech uh, provisions, clause 4.2, and I know that this was uh, something which was to a large extent negotiated um, after earlier versions of this bill with certain um, interest groups or social sectors, creates a certain number of exclusions. So artistic creativity, academic inquiry, reporting and commentary, and religious interpretation and proselytizing are excluded from the strict prohibitions. Um, it's good in a way that this happens because it does help us to sort of rescue free speech um, and the sharing of information. Um, but again, we question in uh, paragraphs 25 onwards of our submission, um, whether this is being done uh, in, in a consistent way. And to put it as, as plainly as we can, why is it that a priest might be allowed by this law to express a view on something like same-sex marriage, which, if that view was expressed by someone who was not a priest, would, would constitute hate speech? It seems a very risky undertaking to start making exceptions to things. And more than that, it probably violates the equality um, sections of the Constitution because it's making people unequal before the law. If I stand up in church and I say something about same-sex marriage, this law says, okay, you're allowed to because you're a priest or because you're an artist or because you're an academic. Uh, but if someone who doesn't happen to be in one of those professions says exactly the same thing, they're going to be guilty of a crime. We don't think that that is workable. And I'm very much aware when I say that that some of my colleagues in the religious sector have been pushing very hard for this exception, to put it as bluntly as I can. We don't agree with that. Um, in paragraph 27, we also point out that when you start to make these exceptions, you're also then illustrating the untenability of trying to restrict free speech in the way that this bill is uh, trying to do it. You're bringing in a certain amount of arbitrariness, which is never acceptable when we want to have the rule of law and where we want everyone to be equal before the law. Um, we've suggested that Clause 4.1a could be rewritten to um, take account of most of these problems um, so that it would read any person who intentionally publishes or propagates anything or communicates anything to one or more persons in a manner that could be reasonably construed to demonstrate a clear intention to advocate hatred that constitutes incitement to cause harm based on one of the grounds, etc. So 
it's going back to the constitutional linkage between speech that advocates hatred and the incitement to cause harm. That takes away the elements of triviality, and it takes away also the defenses of, you know, you're saying this because you're a priest, you're saying this because you're a journalist or an academic, whatever. No one should be able to put out speech that incites harm to other people. Of course, we're not talking about trivial harm, serious harm. Um, <clears throat> I think, uh, Chairperson, that really is the essence of, of what we want to say. I'm not going to um, repeat some of the things that I've already said, um, paragraphs 29 and 30. Um, once again, we do support the idea that uh, hate speech prosecutions would have to be authorized by the DPP for the same reasons as hate crime prosecutions. And lastly, we strongly support Clause 9 of the bill. Uh, we do agree that the state has a duty to prevent and combat uh, acts and behavior, including speech, that involves or really um, promotes hate. Um, because we're talking about an educational campaign here, really, an awareness-raising and educational campaign that needs to happen in our country. Definitely a responsibility of the state. It's definitely a responsibility of civil society, and I would say in certain areas, particularly of the faith community, uh, to have a hand in this, to, to bring about a situation of greater respect and tolerance for other people and their many different characteristics, and to move away from this uh, feeling that some of us seem to have in our country, that we continually need to be telling other people that they are wrong, uh, or that certain characteristics that they have are unacceptable. So, uh, to conclude, Chairperson, we question very much whether there is a need for this category of hate crimes, and we submit that the bill goes too far when it speaks about hate speech towards limitation of freedom of speech, and it needs to be quite uh, severely tightened up. And in brief, that's what Thank our you Thank you very much. Uh, members, are there any questions? Honorable Kubutile Janchi, followed by Honorable Glenis Breitenbach, in that order. Uh, thank you, Chair. Thank you very much, Chair. Let, let me thank uh, the Catholic Bishops' Conference. Um, it's more of a commentary, Chair. And perhaps I'll ask him as a brief question at the end uh, to say that I think uh, certainly for me, he has really uh, put forward very probing, probing questions and probing issues uh, has made me to think much, much deeper. And uh, I, 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 when he stops, stopped talking, I had a sense of a homework that needs to be done to verify a lot of these issues. So I want to appreciate that presentation, uh, which goes, uh, uh, which is so comprehensive and, and touches uh, the important issues. Perhaps Chair, as, 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 as I mull over all of these probing questions he has put, to just ask him of all the issues that he has put on the table, what is this one or two things that he, he feels strong about that as Catholic Bishops Conference that at least if this 
could not be factored in, this bill will be poorer. Uh, in, 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 in terms of its content and, 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 and what it, it, it can achieve. I will be interested um, so that I don't, uh, he's raised so many issues, but I, I'm interested in, in that one or two issues that would really um, be a, a defining feature, either as a lack of or, or, or what we need to have. I hope, I hope he, he understands my, my question. Thank you, Chair. Thank you very much, Honorable Janche, Honorable Glennis Breitenbach. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and good morning to everybody. Um, Chair, yes, I, I largely agree with this uh, presentation, um, and I've been covered in questions by the question of, uh, of the Honorable Janke. Thank you. Thank you very much, Honorable Breitenbach. Uh, over to you, Mr. Pothier. Thank you, Chairperson. Thank you. Sorry, before you proceed, there's also another hand of Honorable Masako Chale. Thank you very much, Chair. My apologies for my video. Uh, serious, I mean, Akashia. So there's a serious uh, problem with this uh, the issue of network. Uh, thank you, Chairperson. And also, good morning, uh, colleagues, and also our presenters, uh, um, and also Chair, let me just ask you one or two questions, two questions from uh, Mr. Mike. I, I didn't get that, I'm still okay, sorry for that. Uh, Chair, my question would be, uh, it, it seems as if there is a growing uh, listening to the presentation, uh, consent that uh, it's not a consent per se, but they are just uh, uh, highlighting the issue that uh, it might be not necessary for us to have uh, this bill, though one way or the other also they support the progress and then and the, the process and then also give us uh, some indication in terms of if this happens to be like the way we are having it now. Uh, he did in indicate earlier that um, in the pre presentation that uh, there are some legislations that covers most of uh, the, the issues that uh, are being presented by this bill. Maybe like the other presenters when they are saying it might not, it, it, it was not going to be, maybe if we don't need this, let me just put it like that in, 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 in a simple terms from my understanding. So my question is that uh, what could maybe be the problem that uh, might have brought us here that uh, the courts and, and could not identify from those uh, Acts or the the, the 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 legislation that we have already, that might maybe make us that made us to be where we are today. I'm not sure if maybe my question is clear, but uh, I'm trying to uh, uh, go somewhere in terms of saying maybe it might not be necessary for us to have this bill, but we may we might strengthen whatever that we have now currently. And then the other one uh, question, clarity question is that maybe he did mention uh, something 
in 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 the presentation also that uh, the when we talk about the 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 hate hate uh, crime or hate speech uh, there are those that are serious and there are those that are trivial maybe to him i just want to find out maybe an example as to which one that might not be that serious because uh, to me i thought that maybe anything that is hateful it is serious to the person that it is directed to thank you chief thank you very much uh, mr potia um thank you chief person thank you in particular to uh, mr janti for his his comments um the question about what do we feel strongest about here um <laughs> i i think in a general sense the, our strongest concern is about the the so say the, the effect that the bill will have in limiting or circumscribing of our freedom of speech but it's not just freedom of speech because freedom of speech is so intimately linked to other freedoms excuse me freedom of information obviously the whole freedom of the media in various ways um it's intimately linked to social debate and even political debate the exchange of ideas our right to criticize in good faith uh, the ideas and the standpoints of other people and so on so freedom of speech is a very very wide ranging and in a democracy an absolutely essential right so i would say that probably our central concern is that this bill um directly threatens to limit that uh, that right um and in an indirect sense through this uh, phenomenon of the chilling effect that people may become nervous about expressing their views even asking questions joining in debates for fear that what they are saying sincerely may be interpreted uh, as constituting hate speech so that would be a general strongest concern and in a very specific sense i think that this word harm um has to has to be somehow if not defined and i'm not sure if it can be defined absolutely it it needs to be qualified and and i think they i i link up with um um ms masako's question as well uh the difference between serious and trivial hate speech it's a little bit like the the question the difference between serious and trivial trivial harm um in in the law there is the concept that the courts have used for many many centuries i think which is called the de minimis rule and uh, the latin phrase de minimis non curat lex the law does not concern itself with trifles um we have a, 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 a jurisprudence that we can go to to find out what are those things um that are so unimportant so trivial that even though for example it may constitute uh theft if i pull a leaf off a tree in your garden and i take that leaf away i have stolen a leaf from your tree it is strictly speaking theft i didn't have a right to do that but if you try to take me to court the court is going to throw it out and say this is so trivial don't waste our time about this 
we need to try to understand how this applies in the area of uh, hate speech as well. And I can't sit here and give you a, a, a perfect example. But I think we all perhaps know that some people are far more sensitive to criticism um, or to be, being called names um, or to, be, to having accusations made against them than other people are. Um, each of us in our own hearts, I think, can understand that a certain thing said to us Yes, it might be a little bit upsetting. Yeah, we would prefer that you didn't say that. But it's not a big deal. It's not going to really harm me. It's not going to, you know, set me back and cause real hurt. But the same thing said to somebody else, well, it might do so. Now, how is a court supposed to deal with that? Because the court cannot proceed simply on the subjective feelings of the person who has heard these words. So there must be a difference between serious and trivial hate speech. I don't know exactly where that difference is, but we can again go back to our constitution, I think, for the primary guidance there. Um, and the constitution uh, in section 16 talks about speech that is either propaganda for war or incitement of imminent violence or uh, advocate of hatred that constitutes an incitement to cause harm. And again, I know that the word harm is once again not defined in the Constitution, but it sounds to be very much like what is being considered there is some sort of physical uh, material harm to somebody, rather than just perhaps an injury to feelings. Um, yeah, it's uh, as Mr. Gianti said, <laughs> perhaps there's some homework that needs to be done to, to come up with, with useful definitions and qualifications of some of these um, these phrases. Uh, there was another question of, of what has brought us to, to where we are with this. And as I said at the beginning of our presentation, no one can deny that we have a problem in this country of that we do violate each other's dignity in the way that we speak about each other. Much of this comes from our history, not all of it. Other things have to do with things like patriarchy, gender relationships, and so on. We need to address that. The question for your committee is whether legislation and if you like the sort of sledgehammer approach of the law, and in particular the criminal law, uh, is the correct way of addressing this. And we have our doubts whether it can be successfully addressed um, through the criminal law. This is much more of a kind of social problem that needs to be addressed with proper formation of people, proper educational campaigns, proper work in our schools, and so on. We do have laws in place. There's the common law, the criminenuria crime, where you can be fined, sent to jail for uttering horrible speech, insulting speech to another person. And we've seen, for example, under our Equality Act, we've seen people being taken to court under the Equality Act, made to pay fines, made to apologize for using racially offensive language and things like that. It's not that we don't have any legal redress for speech that constitutes hate and speech that is really trying to harm someone's dignity. We do have them. And maybe we should make more use of those uh, rather than simply throwing a new law into the pot as well. Thank you very much, Advocate Pothia. Um, members, 
I have been advised that uh, the other organizations like the Institute of Race Relations, Accountability Lab South Africa, are not ready now because I think we have been very efficient with time. We are too ahead of uh, the time we set for ourselves. So uh, the Institute of Race Relations will be ready at half past one. Uh, that will be followed by Accountability Lab South Africa, Access Chapter 2, and Southern Africa Lies in Office. Those are the organizations that we will have after lunch uh, at half past one. So my suggestion is that um, because there's nothing we can do, they're not ready, uh, that we take a long lunch and then we come back at half past one uh, to start with... Um, uh, with the Institute for Race Relations. Uh, the, the other suggestion, members, uh, I tried to get hold of uh, Advocate Bredenbach and Honorable Horn yesterday and Honorable Joseph. The suggestion that we have is that um, we will be left with seven organizations um, to, uh, for the public hearings after today that uh, we will proceed with the public hearings when we come back from recess. Uh, I know that uh, quite a number of ANC members, it will be a difficult day tomorrow uh, to, to, to be, uh, in fact, some of them will be arriving. And then also we have to uh, prepare for the, for the debate at half past uh, two. Um, well, for instance, in terms of our planning, um, even if we had proceeded tomorrow with seven uh, uh, organizations, there was always a possibility that we might, between nine and two and one, we might not be able to finish all of them. So it was, there was always going to be a spillover effect to the other day. So um, my suggestion uh, is that um, uh, we proceed with the public hearings after today. When we come back, we have one or two days to finish the public hearings, and then we proceed with other issues. Will that be in order, members? That's fine, Mr. Chair. I apologize. Yesterday when you called me, I was on a flight. I did call you, back, but then I assume you were on a flight. So, But that's yeah. absolutely Okay, thank you very much, Honorable Bretenbach. Honorable Janji? No, that, it's, it's an order, Chair. It's just for today that uh, uh, from half past one, Honorable Gaul, uh, Mola and yes, myself yes. will be in the Section 194 committee. It's a very important meeting to, to talk about uh, our roadmap and, and, and so on. Okay. Okay. No, no, that, thank you very much, members, for, for, for your understanding. Um, then the Friday meeting... Uh, Honorable Janji, you have a subcommittee in the morning. Is that correct? I'll quickly check that with CR Chair, and then I'll give you. Okay. Because you remember, members, we agreed on that uh, meeting where we'll just be reflecting on the term under review yeah. and planning for the next term. Um, with the decisions of the of the meetings we have taken since our last start, last start plan, 
So one of the reasons also that we, we felt that it would be important to, to allow administration to ensure that they use tomorrow uh, fruitfully so that uh, on Friday they are ready to to make that presentation and we can do sort of a, a, a review of our term and the proper planning for the next term. So, uh, sure. Just, just, on, just on our side, we don't have a subcommittee this Friday, so that you are able to start in the morning. Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much. So, uh, members, uh, that day um, will be reserved for our internal uh, discussions. Uh, as a committee, it will be an internal committee meeting to deal with our own internal issues. Uh, thank you very much, members. Can we adjourn for lunch, for a long lunch? As a reward for us being efe efficient, we are rewarding ourselves, so we'll come back at half past one. Thank you. Thank you very much. Chair, are we locking off or using the same number when we come back? Um, committee Secretary? Uh, we can use this. We'll use the same link, Chair. Okay, thank you. Thanks. And there will be vote Can we exit? Sorry, Chair. Can we exit the meeting and reconnect later? Yes, I think we can exit and use the same uh, login details. Mr. Romano, I, I heard your voice. Okay. Oh, that's fine. So, thank you very much. I just wanted to confirm that we'll use the same link. Oh, okay. No, thank you very much. Uh, the meeting is adjourned until half past one. Thank you. Thank you, Chair. Thank you. Recording stopped.